through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron, as when, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as your people and worship this morning. And Lord, I pray as we open your word and we hear the messages that you have given to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and even specifically, as Brother Mike just read, the message you gave to the church at Thyatira, Lord, I pray that these would not simply be messages in our minds that you have given to churches 2,000 years ago, but Lord, they are messages for your church even this morning. God, I pray that we would be changed. As I pray often, Lord, we know that the goal of our time together in your word is not simply to gain more information, but Lord, it is to see transformation in our lives. May we go out from this place different than we came in for your glory and your glory alone. In the precious name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's something called heart rot tree disease. Heart rot tree disease. It can be a bacteria. It could also be a fungus. But either way, it's really the result is the same. Uh, but I have uh, personal experience with this in that the very first church my dad ever pastored was in a place called Cuero, Texas. It's down around uh, Victoria, San Antonio, that, that area in that region of South Texas. And uh, we were there for about four years and we lived in a parsonage that was directly next door to the church. Um, in fact, our backyard fence connected to the side building of the church. And so we were right there. And in the front yard, there was a really nice oak tree right at the front of uh, the property. 
And this oak tree, it, had, it, it bloomed every year. It had, it had leaves, and, um, and it, the branches actually were growing to the point that they were hanging over the road. I remember we had to trim them back because uh, the cars were hitting them as they were driving by on the road in front of our house. And so this was a nice tree. It was a substantial tree. The, the one thing that was a, a bother with it, though, is right on the side of the tree there was a hole, and in that hole lived the largest woodpecker you have ever seen in your entire life. I mean, this thing looked like a black and red chicken hanging on the side of, a, a, of this tree. And every single morning, I remember every morning, you would wake up to this. Because he would make his way all the way around that tree, working his way down. If you got close enough to the tree, you stood back, you didn't notice it. But if you got close enough to the tree, there wasn't an inch on that tree that didn't have a hole in it. Now, this thing had been living there for a very long time. And, um, but because of all of those holes, it had opened the tree up. So it allowed for this, this tree disease to get into it. And it had gotten to the point where my dad just decided it was too much trouble. And frankly, that woodpecker was driving us crazy. And so we decided, he decided that it needed to come down. And so a few men from the church came over along with my dad. Uh, they took some chainsaws and they began to cut. And when they cut this tree down, what they found was after they cut it down, they were cutting, they only cut through about two inches of wood. And then after that, it was just sawdust and nothing else until they got to the other side. Uh, because this massive tree that was probably about as big around as this pulpit was almost completely hollow. There was nothing inside it. This, this disease had eaten it from the inside out. So on the outside, the tree looked great, but on the inside it had rotted away. Now what happens to the church is that something can come from the outside and can actually begin to destroy the church from the inside. And to the point that you can look at it, and again I'm not going to get into next week's, but you can look at this story, or you can look at this message and you can find that things can seep in. As I said last week in the book of Jude, Jude warns against false teachers. And he warns the church against false teachers. But he makes a very clear point that the false teachers they were to be concerned with were not those outside the church, but those who had actually made their way inside the church. Um, the biggest concern that you and I have in this world, we say, well, oh, this world is full of sin, and it is. This culture is full of sin, and it is. But you know the thing that we're supposed to be concerned with more than anything is not the sin in the culture. It's the sin in our own hearts and the sin within the church. I, I can't control what the culture does. I can control what I do and allow the Holy Spirit to control me. And we can control what happens within the church. When sin is allowed to come into the church, it can destroy the church from the inside out. So a church can actually stand for a very long time and even look somewhat healthy on the outside. But inwardly it is being eaten away. This church in Thyatira was in trouble for something. The church in Thyatira was in trouble for being tolerant. That sounds odd, especially in our culture. Um, they were in trouble for being tolerant. Nowadays, we get in trouble for being intolerant, right? And, and in fact, the only thing that we are supposed to be intolerant of is intolerance. We're supposed to be tolerant of everything. And our, our culture would see this at odd. And frankly, uh, because of the influence of the culture, it seeps into the church. And even in the church, we are told that we are to be tolerant of things. Now, I'm not talking about 
being kind and loving to other people who are of different, maybe a different ethnic background, a different socioeconomic background, all those things. That's a given. You're a Christian. If you're not doing it, you should be. And if you are doing something against it, you should stop. I'm talking about being tolerant of something else entirely. See, tolerance is one of maybe even the most highest praise virtues in our culture today. And the number one thing that is what I would call the unforgivable sin of our culture is actually disagreeing with someone's viewpoint. If you disagree with someone's viewpoint, you are automatically intolerant and a bigot and you hate people. The problem is, when it comes to God's people, we should be the most open, the most loving, the most caring people on the face of the planet because of the love that we have been shown through Jesus Christ. We should also be the most intolerant towards sin, unrighteousness, and anything that brings a smudge upon the holiness of God. So we have to ask ourselves, even today, am I tolerating sin? In my own personal life or even around me. And as we look at this text this morning, what we'll see is that faithful disciples aim for a pure church and anticipate a glorious eternity. Aim for a pure church and anticipate a glorious eternity. Jesus reveals himself here, just as he has previously. I'll mention it really quickly, but you remember, for instance, um, he tells the church... That he is the the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And then he says he is the one who was dead and has now been made alive. And then he begins to tell them that they're going to suffer persecution. And then they're going to, uh, many of them are even going to have to face death. And so this would be an amazing message, right? That if you're going to face death, you worship the one who has been dead but has now been raised to life. And so we talked about even last week that Jesus reveals himself at the beginning of the message to each church to be exactly who they need for him to be. And in this particular passage, he he reveals himself to be exactly who they need to be, or need him to be. And what we see here is first that as faithful disciples, we worship an almighty God. We worship an almighty God. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So, Before we get into Jesus' introduction, I'll give you a little background. The uh, the city of Thyatira is an interesting city with an interesting historical setting. Thyatira is the longest letter or message, letter uh, to the churches. It's the longest one of the seven, and yet Thyatira is the least known church historically. There's not a ton known about it, but it's the longest letter. Um, Thyatira was a city that was founded in 300 B.C. by Alexander the Great. And the word Thyatira means unceasing sacrifice. Unceasing sacrifice. That actually sounds like a pretty cool name uh, and a pretty cool meaning until you find out why they called it Thyatira. It was called Thyatira or unceasing sacrifice because it was 40 miles from Pergamum, which we already looked at the church. Um, the, it was 40 miles from the, church, or from the city of Pergamum, which was the capital city. And Thyatira had one purpose. It was set up as a city... That was essentially a warning or an alarm system for the capital city. 
So as they were being invaded by foreign uh, enemies, uh, they would always attack Thyatira first because they would come from that direction. As they attacked Thyatira, the whole purpose of Thyatira was to simply fight long enough to give the capital enough time to get ready before they were attacked. So as you can imagine, that meant that Thyatira was wiped out completely multiple times throughout history and then rebuilt. So why were they referred to as the unceasing sacrifice? Simply because that's what they were. They were given up as a sacrifice to foreign enemies constantly. Uh, that was why they were named this. It was also a center for pagan worship. Just as Pergamum, the capital city, was, it was a center for pagan worship. And it was known for wool and for dyes, specifically purple dye. In fact, in the ancient culture, um, at this time at least, the only place that you could get purple uh, was in Thyatira. Uh, in fact, you know of someone in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Paul's first convert in Macedonia or in Greece was a woman named Lydia who was a seller of purple, and it says that she is from the city of Thyatira. So we know about her from the New Testament. Now, this is the city, this is the, the place that he is writing this letter to. So it is a, it is a massive uh, area of commerce it is very well known throughout all that, the world in that time period. Um, and it is constantly being overthrown and rebuilt. And so he reveals himself to be the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, it's interesting that these three things, uh, when he refers to himself this way, it sounds very similar to the title uh, that he has given by Daniel in the book of Daniel and even the description that Daniel gives. The first thing he says is that he is the son of God. This is the first time that he's revealed to be this or, or stated to be this in Revelation. It's really the only time that he's referred to as this in the book of Revelation. And he himself calls himself the son of God. What he is saying by being the son of God is in their culture, along with being divine himself, it also means sometimes they would use this title to refer to their king. So it was referring to the right and the ability to rule. It, was, it refers to his authority as the divine son of God. So Jesus first reveals himself as one who has authority. Not just a good teacher. Not just a moral exemplar. Not just one that you could follow and maybe understand his teachings and they could help you out a little bit. But Jesus reveals himself to the church at Thyatira as the son of God. The second thing he says though is he has eyes like a flame of fire. See, fire cleans, fire burns, of course, fire destroys. It does all these things, but in the end, you can really boil it down to one thing. Fire goes through, eventually, fire goes through whatever it touches. It, it, can, it can burn through it. And so when we hear him say that he has eyes like flames of fire, that means that he can see through anything and everything. That's the statement he's making. He has the ability to see through. So the first statement, being the son of God, he's saying he has authority. The second statement, in having eyes like flames of fire, is that he has omniscience. He, he is all-knowing. He knows everything. There is nothing that you could do that he does not see. You'll see in a minute there's nothing you can think or even feel that he does not know. And so it says that he, is, he has authority, he has the ability to see everything, and then the final statement is that he has feet like burnished bronze. Or the feet are a reference to judgment. So anytime you needed mercy and you were being judged, what do you do? You throw yourself at the judge's 
feet. This has to do with his authority to judge, to be a powerful judge. Why? Because they're not just any feet. They're feet like burnished bronze, which is powerful and strong. And so this, again, like the reference in the book of Daniel. So he has strength and power. He's a powerful judge. So he is one who has authority. He is one who sees everything, and he has the power to judge. Now, why is this important? Remember I said he reveals himself to be whatever they need. Where you're going to see in a minute they have a problem. They have a problem with sin. They have sin in the church. And because they have sin in the church, what's the first thing that we do whenever we sin as human human beings? Well, the first thing we'll do is say things like, well, you know, if if the church calls out sin in someone else's life, then the first thing that's said is, well, you can't judge me. You can't tell me what I can and cannot do. Jesus reveals himself to say, yes, I can. The second thing that we try to do is we try to hide our sin. We try to hide our sin and not show, not let other people see it. Jesus says, not only do I have the authority to call out sin, but I have the ability to see it no matter how well you try to hide it. And then the third one is, well, maybe, maybe, um... Maybe it's not that big of a deal to him. Maybe I can get away with it. One day when I stand before the Lord, you know, maybe, maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. What does he say? He says, you, try to, you think I can't judge you, I can judge you. I have the authority to do so. You think I can't see your sin, I can see everything. And if you think I'm going to let it go, I'm not going to let it go. He declares himself to be this one And because of that, we have to have a proper understanding of Jesus Christ. I can honestly tell you this. You and I do not sin because we are stuck in it. You and I do not sin because we can't, uh, that it just, it's something, oh, Pastor Jeremy, it's just something that, that won't let me go. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as sin that won't let you go. But there is very much a thing as sin that you will not let go of. And what he's saying here is we have to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. Why? We don't sin just because sin is awesome. We sin because we have a very, as I said last week, we have a very small view of God. We don't really understand the holiness of God the way that Jesus does. And that's why we allow things to happen both in our lives and even in our homes and even in our churches because we have a small view of God. If we really understood who Jesus was... He is the Son of God. He is the one with eyes like flames. He sees everything. He knows it. You you try to get away with something. You think you're getting away with something. You could get away with something with everybody else, but you can't get away with it with God. You can't escape Jesus and his eyes like flaming fire. He doesn't sit back and ignore who we are. He doesn't sit back and ignore what we do. He has the ability and the authority To call out our sin. He has the knowledge to know what you and I have done. And he has the power to judge it. That's simply it. When we understand that about Jesus Christ. It gives us the ability to recognize and to know sin. To call sin what it is. And to root it out of his church. See, you got to remember. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself for her that he might present her blameless by washing her in the water of the word and that she might be presented pure and spotless. And then Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery about the church. So it's not that he uses Jesus and his relationship to the church as an illustration to help us understand marriage. He uses marriage as an illustration to help us understand the church. 
And so when Jesus, or when the Apostle Paul describes what the church is supposed to look like, the church is supposed to be pure and spotless and blameless, washed in the water of the Word of God. And because of that, that is when the church is at its best, when the church is following the Word, because we understand we have a gracious and loving Savior who is the Almighty Son of God, who can see everything and see through everything, and He will judge So we worship an almighty God. But as faithful disciples, we need to have a faith that works and won't tolerate sin. We need to have a faith that works and won't tolerate sin. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he says, I know your works. Again, here's the, I know, I know. Why? Because he has eyes of like flaming fire. He knows everything. He knows. So he says, I know your works. He knows what you are doing, church. He knows what we are doing. He also, that also means he knows what we are not doing. He knows our works. And then he lists the works. He says, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. It's interesting uh, that he lists faith, love, and patient endurance is actually principles all through the New Testament, right? Faith, hope, and love. So he says that they have love, love for one another, love for other people. This sounds really good. They have love for one another. They have love for other people, love for God. It can cover all of those. They have faith. They have belief, even in the midst of hard times, even in the midst of difficulty that's all around them. Uh, They have service. They're working hard in the community and even in their church to serve others and to be like Christ. And they have patient endurance. We don't know if they were going through any kind of of persecution per se. He doesn't list it in this letter. But at the same time, whenever he says patient endurance, they're enduring something and they're doing it patiently. Waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're doing all of these things. And even if that's not enough, then he says, and I know that your latter works exceed the first. So so the the first church, the church at Ephesus, he said that this thing I have against you is that you have left the love you have at first. This one, he actually says, I know your works and I know that you're doing better now than you were at the beginning. It's the exact opposite. This sounds amazing. This church is killing it. And then verse 20. But I have this against you. So there's something wrong. All these amazing things that they're doing. All of these amazing things that they are being. And he says, but I have this against you that you tolerate. So what's the problem with this church? It's that they're tolerant. This church is tolerant. That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And it's actually phrased exactly that way. That woman, Jezebel. Now, 99.9% certain... That her name is not actually Jezebel. Okay? Um, for a few reasons. One, that would be a little bit different than what's done here uh, most of the time. But two, uh, you know, there are just, there are certain names. Right? Um, you're, you know, people who don't even know the Bible, know nothing about the Bible at all. If you were to go up to them and refer to their daughter as a Jezebel, they know exactly what you mean. They know exactly what you're saying. It's not an. It's like people, you know, tend uh, tend to do it. You know, people might name their child Jude. They may even name their child Judah, but very few people, if ever, name their child Judas. Right? You just you just don't do it. 
It's not a, it's not a name that people go with. Why? Because Jezebel was the queen uh, and she was married to King Ahab. But Jezebel came from outside of Israel. And when she did, she brought in all kinds of pagan idolatry. She brought in the worship of Baal and the worship of Asherah. Uh, the worship of Baal. Baal was a fertility god. Uh, Baal was worshipped um, for the ability to bring in crops, but also the ability for someone to have a child. So he's a fertility god. And then Asherah was basically the female counterpart of Baal. It was the, the goddess of fertility. So these two, uh, god, this, this false god and false goddess, when they were worshipped, they were worshipped through feasting and things of that nature, but they were also worshipped through all manner of sexual immorality. Uh, you can imagine because they are the quote-unquote god and goddess of fertility, everything that could go along with it. And yes, you could research it. I wouldn't recommend it. Definitely don't Google it. Uh, but when you look in, uh, when you research this in uh, in biblical uh, uh, understand or biblical commentaries and things of that nature, the the practices that went along with this kind of pagan idolatry, specifically in worshiping Baal and worshiping Asherah, were just absolutely horrific. They're absolutely horrific. And it says here, he actually says it. She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. So these are believers that are being seduced. It's it's happening in the church. They're being seduced to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So she is, she's convincing him. She's teaching him. It's as if he says this. He says, Thyatira, you're doing all of these amazing things. Your, your faith and all of those things, are, your love and, and your, your patient endurance and your service, it's, it's even better than it was before. But I have this one thing against you. You have that woman, Jezebel, teaching Sunday school. It says she's teaching. So, and, and he's not drawing to the fact that she's teaching per se, but he's drawing the fact of what she's teaching. She's actually telling the people that it is okay to practice sexual immorality. That it is okay uh, to do all of these things that go along with pagan idolatrous worship. And he says his issue he's got with them is not that they're necessarily teaching this. It's not even that some of them are necessarily agreeing with her. Do you notice what it says? He says, but this one thing I have against you that you tolerate it. You allow it to remain in the church. You allow it to remain as a part of of the ministry. In verse 21 he says, "I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality." So even in the midst of this, this woman, he calls a Jezebel who is teaching the people of God that it is okay to participate in pagan idolatrous worship and still say you're a Christian. Think about it this way. Put it in our context. She is teaching the people that it is okay to live according to the culture's sexual ethic and the culture's um, uh, decisions and desires and yet also show up at church and worship and say you're a faithful Christian. That's what she is teaching the people to do. And even in the midst of that, with all of the horrible sexual immorality that she is peddling, look at what it says. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. So even in the midst of this, even this woman, he says, I did what? He shows her grace. He shows her grace because he gives her time to repent. But he doesn't say, I gave her time to repent and she missed out. He says, I gave her time to repent and she refuses. So this is her decision to not repent, to not turn away from what she is doing. Then he says in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. 
So, um, you know, unless we forget, our God is not uh, what, uh, what we would refer to as the God of deism. Uh, God didn't create the world and, and get everything rolling and then just step back and just watches how it happens. He is actively involved. And he's actively involved specifically in the lives of believers and in the lives of his church. And did you notice what he says here? He says that this woman, because she refused to repent, listen to what it says again, I will throw her onto the sickbed. You better believe that God takes the holiness of his church seriously and he will do what he needs to do to make certain that she remains holy. You know, Paul... In writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he's talking to them about the Lord's Supper. He says, some of you, you've partaken of the Lord's Supper and you have held it in derision. You've taken it in vain. And because of this, some of you have gotten sick and some of you have even died. Not because the food was poisoned, but because God was judging them for trying to pollute his church. He said, man, this is harsh. Yeah, because God takes the holiness of his bride seriously. You don't mess with God's church. I tell the staff all the time that our job is this, is that the bridegroom left for a while and his bride is still here and it's our job to take care of his bride until he gets back. So he says, I'll throw her into the sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation so they'll suffer. But look at what it says. Unless they repent of her works. He's giving them an opportunity to turn away and to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is not him just coming in with an iron fist and dropping it down. He is telling them, look, this woman who was doing it, I gave her an opportunity to repent. She refused. I am now saying I'm giving everyone else an opportunity to repent before I come and take care of business. So he offers grace. Then in verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. Literally, I will kill them with death. That's what it says in Greek. I will kill them with death. Um, You say, well, does this mean her actual children? It could. It could also mean those who follow her. Either way, he says he's bringing death. You say, well, man, I just, I don't know if, I don't know if the God I serve, stop before you think that. Because if you say the God you serve will not punish sin in that way, then the God you serve is not the God of the Bible. I don't relish this at all, but I know this. I have no problem recognizing that if I don't remain in the will of God, he could strike me dead right now. He's the God of all creation. What is he? He is the son of God. He is the one with eyes like flaming fire. He's the one with feet as burnished bronze. Again, if you don't think that's the case, then look at the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts. He took a person named Ananias and his wife Sapphira... And showed them that he takes the holiness of his church seriously. And what happened? It says, and a great fear came upon all of them and they worshipped. Look what it says here. And I will strike her children dead. Not for no reason. It's not like he's just in here killing people and just saying, ha ha, look at me. There's a specific reason and he's offering grace. And then look what he says. And I'll do these things. And all the churches... Power. <laughs> and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. That's a scary phrase. He says that I am the one, all the churches, which churches? All seven of the churches. That's why I said at the beginning, this isn't seven different letters, this is one letter written to seven churches. 
He says, then all of the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. The mind is the place of the feelings, the place of the emotions. The heart is the, the, the thoughts, the seat of the will. And so he says what? He says, I know everything. I know your works. I know your thoughts. I know your feelings. I know your emotions. You literally cannot escape what he knows. And he says, everyone will know that, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Well, for those who were following the first part, where he knows their works, their, their, their love and their sacrifice, or I mean their, their service, their patient endurance, and their faith. And because he knows them, he will give according to their works. But to those who refuse to repent and, and are following the way of, of false idolatry and they're following the way of this woman who are teaching these things, he says, I will give according to your works. See, our faith should work. And I don't just mean that it should be right, it should, it should work, but I mean it should toil, it should, it should work hard, and these things should definitely be true of us. However, the scariest thing to me is we can see from this passage that it is possible to be an extremely active church, to be doing all manner of things, to be accomplishing all manner of wonderful things and still fall prey to tolerating sin. See, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, maybe this phrase is one of the scariest things because regardless of how well you think you're hiding it, he, he sees your sin. He sees your sin. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Your sin will eventually destroy you. Your alienation from God will eventually destroy you if you do not turn from your sin. And you could do that. He, that's what he says right here. He even gives the woman Jezebel an opportunity to return from her sin, to, to turn away from her sin and to, put her, to trust and, and to follow Christ. He, give, he gave her an opportunity. He gives others an opportunity. He's giving you an opportunity this morning to turn from your sin. So well, you don't know what I've done. I can promise you this. If you were to research what it meant to be a Jezebel and to bring in pagan idolatry, uh, idolatrous worship of Baal and Asherah, I can promise you this. Whatever you've done and whoever you've been with and whatever you have said or thought, one, he knows it all, and two, it's not any worse than anything she was doing or that she was teaching the people to do. And yet he says, return. Repent and come back. You can do that. Why? Because you were made, you were made to worship. You were made for Him. You were made for this Almighty God, the, 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 the Son of God, the one with eyes like flame. You were made for Him, for His purposes and for His glory. You don't have to stay far away from Him. He calls you this morning and says, come to me. He's calling them. It, this is what's amazing. You realize that these letters are not final judgments. These letters are actually warnings. He's letting them know ahead of time. He could just come in and judge them, but he didn't. He's warning them. And you are here, if you're a believer this morning, or if you're not a believer this morning, this is a warning to you. Turn to Christ. Run. Run to Jesus. So in the midst 
of all of this, we also recognize that faithful disciples remain faithful. They remain faithful. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. That's interesting. He uses the phrase deep things of Satan. Uh, truth is, I've done a lot, of worship, uh, a lot of research on what this means. And in the end, I can tell you pretty definitively that I think it means really, really bad things. That's all I can figure out. Really, really bad things. It, that, he's just referring to horrible, sinful acts and horrible, sinful things uh, that they were doing. And, and he's referring to them as the deep things of Satan. But the, the point that I want to draw out of this is this. He says in verse 24, but to the rest of you. But to the rest of you. Uh, those that didn't hold to this. Those that did not uh, know this. That no matter how bad you think it is. There's always a group of people who are towing the line. And following Jesus Christ. And doing what they know is best uh, to do. And obeying him. And seeking to grow in him. And seeking to worship him daily. And to lead their families. And to lead themselves. And to watch the church grow. And all those things. Those things are happening. There are people around. I would even say it's a large number of people. He says for the rest of you. For the rest of you. You're like all right, Lord. What do you want from them? I mean, who are they? Well, they're the ones he was talking about at the beginning. The ones who have the love and the faith and the service and the patient endurance. And they're doing better now than they were at the beginning. And they're growing in their faith. Um, he's talking to them and he's, okay, what next, Lord? What next? And he says, nothing next. Do you realize that? If there's nothing next, then you know what that means? Church, if we're going to be honorable to the Lord, we're going to follow the Lord, then that means that we have to have love, faith, Patient endurance and service. Those are the things that should mark the people of God. It's so much so that he actually says, actually, I'm not going to tell you to do anything else. I'm just going to tell you to keep doing what you're doing. To keep improving. To keep walking that life of faith. And he says in, in, in verse 25, only, so this is the only stipulation that he puts on them. Only hold fast. So he doesn't say to do anything new. He says to just keep doing what you're doing and to hold fast to what you know to do and to keep pushing onward until he comes. Simply put, it is possible to live a life that honors God. It is possible to be both an individual and a, and ch and a church that honors God with our lives and with our actions and our activities. It's possible to do so. This church had sin all around them in their culture, obviously. But this church also had sin all inside it. It was just everywhere. And yet, even in the midst of that, there's a group of people who were remaining faithful. And God says, hey, for you, y'all just keep doing what you're doing. See, it's possible to do it. But, you know, in the midst of that, where you're surrounded by sin outside, but also you have sin and things like that on the inside of the church, you know you have to be bold in order to, to, to stand up to that. You have to be bold uh, to live that way in the midst of a culture around you and even within the church, and yet they remain holy. It doesn't matter how much pressure there may be around us, even close to us, it is possible, and we are called to live a holy life that honors God. It's possible. And, and he tells us here, he tells them, only hold fast what you have until I come. How long do you get to hold fast? How long... Do you, do you keep growing? 
See, it, it drives me crazy, and, I, and I'm not saying here necessarily, but I've heard it throughout all of my years in the ministry. Eventually, someone will say something like, well, I'm not going to do that because I've already done my time. I've already served in the church, and it's time for other people to do so. Or I've pretty much learned everything that there is to learn. I have grown. I'm, I've, I feel like I've matured in my faith. And yet here, he says that you're to keep going. You're to keep growing. You're to keep moving forward. When? How long does he say? Until I come. That means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're never done growing until you're standing before the throne. So it doesn't matter if you're 20 or 85. It doesn't matter. If you're in the church and you're still here, your goal and your purpose in life is what? To love, to have patient endurance, to have faith, and to participate in service. That is your goal. That is your purpose. We are to remain faithful. And then finally... Faithful disciples rest in his faithful promises. Verse 26. The one who overcomes, or the one who conquers, and who keeps my works until the end. Notice that. In order to conquer, you've got to keep his works until the end. Perseverance. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces... Even as I myself have received authority from my father. So he says um, that he will give authority over the nations. I'm not going to get into this because it would take much longer if we were doing a verse by verse study through Revelation. We could talk about this. I would just say, look at Revelation chapter 20. He's referring to the time when uh, he will rule and those who are his saints will rule with him. Okay? So he says, rule with a rod of iron and talks about breaking broken pots into, into pieces. He's referring to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 14, Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, when we're told that, that was what the, that's what judgment is for, uh, that he will shatter those who stand against him, and he will rule with a rod of iron. But notice what it says. To him I will give authority, as I myself have received authority from my Father. So Jesus is saying, and that you're hearing it right, Jesus is saying to those of us who are believers, He will give authority the same kind of authority that He has. He will grant authority to you and to me to rule with Him and on His behalf just as the Father gave Him authority. And then He says this, And I will give Him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the morning star. It sounds amazing. It sounds really great. So what does that mean? Well, you know, sometimes, as I said before, like deep things of Satan, there's really no connection to know what it means. Um, but we actually do know what the morning star is. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, tells us exactly what the morning star is. It says, I, Jesus have sent my angel, my messenger, to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So Jesus says, and I will give him me. I will give him me. To the one who overcomes, I will give him me. See, the glory of heaven 
It's not gates that look like pearl. It's not streets that look like gold or a sea that looks like glass. It's not getting to talk to Paul. It's not getting to talk to Peter. It's not getting to sit down and shoot the breeze with Moses. It's not getting a mansion or a room. It's not getting any of those things. It's not even getting to talk to a loved one that has gone on before you. The glory of heaven, the amazing thing about heaven, is not that you and I get heaven. It's not that you and I get rewards. It's not that you and I get any of those things. The glory of heaven is that when you get there, you get all. Of Jesus. And you get it for all eternity. The glory of heaven, the Son of God, I love it. It says that there is no sun and there is no moon because the glory of God is the light by which you see. Why is heaven so amazing? Why do we need to be this kind of church that doesn't tolerate sin and lives faithfully for the glory of God? Is because one day when you overcome and when I overcome, I get Jesus. Paul said, right now you may see as through a glass dimly, but then you will see him face to face. The blessing of heaven is not that you get stuff. It's that for all of eternity, we get Jesus. Are you tolerating sin in your own life? Do you know of it around you and you're not willing to speak into it? Are you tolerating sin? Because that's the one thing he had against them. Not necessarily that they were sinning, but that they were tolerating it. What do we do? Repent. That's what he calls them to. Repent. Turn away from it. And do the right thing. It's that simple. And when you overcome, church, if you're a believer this morning, the blessed truth that when you overcome, you get Jesus for all of eternity. But you know what's so amazing? What's so amazing is that the scripture tells us, the apostle Paul says, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are already seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. It's not just that you have to wait until then to get all of Jesus. You can have all of Jesus right now. You can be filled to overflowing both now and in eternity. And you can be moved to say, now I've used the hymn at the end of every one of these. I'm not going to stop now. You could be moved to say just as Fanny Crosby did in 1869 when she said this. This is one of my favorite hymns. She said, praise him, praise him. Jesus, our blessed redeemer, sing, O earth, his wonderful love, proclaim. Hail him, hail him, highest archangels in glory. Strength and honor give to his holy name. Like a shepherd, Jesus will guard his children And in his arms he carries them all day long. Praise him, praise him. Jesus our blessed redeemer for our sins. He suffered and bled and died. He is our rock, our hope of eternal salvation. Hail him, hail him, Jesus the crucified. Sound his praises, Jesus who bore our sorrows. Love unbounded, wonderful, deep and strong. Praise Him, praise Him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. Heavenly portals, loud with Hosanna's ring. Jesus, Savior, reigneth forever and ever. Crown Him, crown Him, prophet and priest and king. Christ is coming. Over the world victorious. Power and glory unto the Lord belong. Praise Him, praise Him. Tell of his excellent greatness.
Praise him. Praise him. Ever in joyful song. You can do it now. But hear me, believer. If we live as the kind of church that honors God and doesn't tolerate sin, then for all of eternity, you may get all kinds of things. But did you know the scripture says that even when you're rewarded for all the things you have done and you are given crowns and jewels and precious stones, you know one of the greatest moments in all of eternity is when every one of us gets all of that and then we immediately turn around and throw it all at the feet of Jesus because it all belongs to him. Why? Because in the end, when you're in heaven, all the crowns, all the jewels, all the precious stones, they mean nothing. All you get is Jesus. You realize that means that you this morning and the Apostle Paul, when it's all said and done, you'll be standing with the same thing. You'll both be standing there with Jesus. And you can say, praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him. Ever in joyful song.